Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that we could assemble today for worship. To worship the true and living God. For you are God and there is no other. And you are our God. And we will worship you. We give you thanks and praise for your word. The word of truth. That in the day in which we live, in which the truth is being maligned and the precepts of your word are being shrugged off and laid aside. How grateful we are that we can come to you, God, and ask you to reinforce and reestablish the truth of your word in our lives, in our day, for your glory. So we ask in Jesus' name, that you would speak your words of life into our hearts, transforming our minds, causing us to be conformed more into the image of your Son. And may it be all for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember last week we were discussing the importance of being imitators of God as beloved children, that we were to walk as children of light. And as Paul admonished the Ephesian believers in that day, we too are admonished by the Spirit to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The reason why I wanted to bring up what we, where we have been is because, indeed, as Paul is speaking on the subject of marriage, those things must be in place. We must become imitators of God as beloved children. We must be children of the light and not of the darkness. When we must be in subjection to one another in the fear of Christ. Because as we enter into this subject that Paul is writing about regarding marriage, each of those things must be quality in the believer's life in order to know what the secret is of having a good marriage. And what is that secret of having a good marriage? Well, some will tell us that it starts with finding your soulmate. And once you have found him or her, well, you're well on the way to not just having a good, but a great marriage. And you hear this sort of thing even coming from the mouths of Christians and non-Christians alike, to find your cellmate. Still, there are others who say it is important that you find a mate who will accept you just as you are. That person will not try to change you in some way, but they'll be there for you to meet your needs, to satisfy your desires, to share your goals, that they'll have the right chemistry. In other words, they'll scratch where you itch. They'll complete what you lack. They'll be the one who is compatible, the one who completes you. Well, 
I'd like to say to those of you who are not married and want to be married that such lofty platitudes and expectations of seeking and finding such a mate for marriage is not only naive, it's unrealistic, but even most importantly, it's sinfully wrong-headed. Yet in spite of this being true, there are many young people today who are mentally convinced that their search will discover that person of their dreams, their Romeo or their Juliet. But do you know what was the outcome of Shakespeare's play? They both killed themselves. Timothy and Kathy Keller wrote a book entitled The Meaning of Marriage. And in that book, they actually reference a Duke University ethics professor. His name was Stanley Hauserwitz. And he stated this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions for personal fulfillment. It's necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage, and it fails to uh, and appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry what we think is the right person, just think, just give it a while, he says, and he or she will change. For marriage being an enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. What Hazarus is getting at here is this. He shows in his book that the quest for a perfectly compatible soulmate is an impossibility. And yet that is what we are being told can happen by finding the perfect soulmate. But let us not diminish the fact that marriage is indeed a very important institution in fact, James Boyce in his commentary on Ephesians said, quotes Ed Wheat, who said, calls marriage the most valuable institution on earth. With that in mind, what is the secret then of having a good marriage? How do we know that we have a good marriage? 
The secret for having a good marriage has been and always will be us following God's design, God's blueprint for marriage. It is significant as you consider the Scriptures that the Bible begins with the institution of marriage by a man and a woman that God had created as given in Genesis, which we read this morning, this book of beginnings. But it is also significant that we realize that at the end of this book, in the book of Revelation, we have a marriage there. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, of Christ the groom, married to his bride, the church. The institution of marriage is God's creation so that man would not be alone, so man would be fruitful and multiply. He would fill the earth and subdue it, as we read in Genesis. As God created man in his image, in his likeness, male and female and nothing more, God created marriage as a lifelong covenantal relationship between a husband, one man, and a wife, one woman, to prosper them, to protect them, to pleasure them, and to purpose them to live in a blessed, complementary life in love relationship with one another before God and for God's glory. And despite what tragically occurred after that first wedding performed by God to Adam and Eve, meaning that tragedy being man's fall into sin and the curse of sin on the relationship they had with God, with one another, and with all of creation, and yet with that tragic incident in the Garden of Eden, God's blueprint for marriage has not changed. How do I know that this is true? Well, the answer is found in Scripture. We've been reading about it in these texts where the inspired writers actually quote from the original marriage text in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me draw your attention again to this fact, that these subsequent verses that speak about Genesis 2.24 have come to us after the fall and they are in the New Testament. Like in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, or Mark chapter 10, verse 7, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. What has substantially changed, though, in the marriage relationships is that we are living it out in a fallen world and that we are sinners, though saved by grace. There is painfulness and there is hardship that we're going to face as sinners redeemed by Christ in marriage. 
How do I know this? Just listen to the statistics. One out of every two marriages end up in divorce. Young people today think they're going out to buy a car. They want to test drive the relationship by just living together rather than coming under the commitment of marriage before they actually get married. And there are many young people today because marriage is on the decline in its traditional sense. Marriage, many young people today are putting off marriage altogether. Why? Well, they're not willing to give up what they already have in life. And because the marriage institution that God has ordained and designed is so valuable as an institution, we need to realize that it is one of those institutions that is the most assaulted in this world. Not just because of sin being in the world and us living under these fallen conditions, but because of even our adversary, Satan's attacks. Christian marriages are being assaulted also by the media, by academia, by peer pressure, and by Christians, listen to me, by Christians that are becoming compliant or who are compromising to the worldly ideas of what a marriage should be. You see, the secret to a good marriage is only going to happen when we live out that marriage by God's blueprint, God's design. But the other part of this answer comes in this way. The secret of having a good marriage has been and always will be by God's grace and his power through his indwelling spirit blessing us in our marriages. Remember how Paul had taught us back there in Ephesians that we need to put off the old man and put on the new man. That we're to walk as children of light and we're to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Well, how did Paul say that we as believers are to accomplish this? He makes it very clear. We're to understand what the will of God is and to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, we as the people of God need to know what the will of God is in regard to marriage. And we, as God's people, need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep on being filled. The emphasis is there. We know from God's Word that marriage consists of one man and one woman for life. And that is why we're instructed there in Genesis 2.24 that we must leave our father and mother and we must cleave 
to our wives. In some cases in Christian circles, that leaving is not happening and is causing great problems within the marriage relationship. Just as so is that there is instances within the Christian church where people are not cleaving to their wives as God intended. We know that it is a covenantal relationship that we not only have with one another as husband and wife, but it is before God. It is a spiritual union before God, and that we must understand that God has not changed. He hates divorce. God hates divorce. Just read Malachi 2, 14 through 16. Just read Jesus' response to those Pharisees in Matthew 19. It was because of the hardness of your heart. Well, how are we to function then in our marriages? In God's design of marriage, does the woman and man have different roles? The quick answer is yes, we do. Just as within the church we learned that the members, each member is important, they have differing tasks, they have different responsibilities, they even have differing gifts and roles within the body of Christ, and that is by design, that's by God's design. So it is true by God's design in marriage. That's why we read here in verses 22 through 24 that the wives are supposed to be subject to their husbands as to the Lord. Because God has made the husband the head over his wife as Christ is head over the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. So as the church, as the bride of Christ is to be subject to its head, so wives are to be subject to their husbands in everything. Paul in another letter sort of alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 11:3, where he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Amen. You see, it's God's plan design to have roles in marriage. The wife is to be subject to her husband for the husband has been given by God headship over his wife which among other things means this, that the husband is given the delegated responsibility to provide for her needs, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, meeting her needs. And he is called to protect her from all evil as she submits to him as unto the Lord. 
one of the ways the wife is supposed to be subject to her husband? Well, I alluded to it. It is as unto the Lord. A wife is to submit to her husband as she does to the Lord. But he makes another clarification about this submission where he says, as the church is subject to Christ. Meaning, in the manner in which the church is continually supposed to be in subjection and in obedience to Christ its head, so the wife is supposed to be toward her husband, to his directions, his care, as he follows the Lord. Wives, this is not optional. If you want to have the secret to a loving and fulfilling marriage, you must fulfill by faith this role. A wife cannot be obedient to God if she is not subject to her husband. That's how closely it's tied. Well, I've said enough about wives. Let's go to husbands. Because in verses 25 through 28, we have the role of the husband. They are called to love their wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Here, husbands are commanded to sacrificially love their wives, just as Christ sacrificially loves his church. As the church, the body of Christ is loved and cherished and protected and in union with Christ, its head, so the husband, as the head of the wife, is to love, to cherish, to protect that union with his wife before God. Do for your wives, husbands, what Christ has done for you. For the gospel and marriage do explain one another. The ways the husband is to love his wife, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Meaning, the husband's love is not only a sacrificial love, but it's willfully being able to give himself to her, to meet her where she is, to purposefully, if you will, understand where she is, to listen to what she's saying and trying to help her and to foster spiritual growth in her life. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 real quickly. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
And look with me at verses 5 through 7. Peter gives an example of what it means for a wife to be submissive to her husband, but look at the flip side that it turns into as she gives this example. Verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Verse 7, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Do you see the spiritual connection between the husband and the wife in regard to how the husband loves his wife and if he should fail to love her in this manner that even his prayer life with God could be hindered? Boyce, in his commentary on Ephesians, has a title of one of his chapters based on this particular set of verses. It says this, loving husbands, happy wives. I'll add this to it, though. Happy wives, happy and loving homes and lives together. Do you think that this speaks to some of the things that are going on currently today? This quote-unquote sexual revolution, this exploiting of males and females, both by the confusion as well as the mutilation in the area of gender, or the sex trafficking that goes on today? or the pornography to fulfill selfish sexual desires? It surely does. Such demoralization of human beings is reprehensible, for it attacks the sacred principle of mankind's existence as being created in God's image. And it devalues to destroy the sanctity of human life and the institution of marriage itself. The third point I want to give, and final, the secret of having a good marriage has been and always will be by realizing that our marriage relationships are to be imaging Christ's infinite love relationship with his bride the church, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this case, I want you to know it's not about you. Marriage is not about you. It's about what Christ is doing through your marriage and how it in miniature shows the world 
as you're living it out according to God's blueprint, according to the power and grace of God, it is pointing out to the world the gospel of Christ. He closes this section, he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own self, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. It's for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This mystery is great when we consider how the union of a man and a woman in holy matrimony as God designed it can be by his grace a miniature show a display of the greater union of Christ and his church. Wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, mutually loving and sacrificing to bring out a mutual loving fulfillment. Truly, one of the most fearsome areas of spiritual battle that we are dealing with today is the recurring conflict that is entering into the Christian home. And I believe this spiritual battle rages among husbands and wives. Not because they are not seeking the Lord's blueprint, not because they're not seeking God's grace and power, but because they are. We need to continually be asking, God, give us grace, give us power, give us your divine guidance through your spirit, and bless our marriages today. May God help Christian husbands and wives. May he help us to rededicate ourselves to our God-given roles as wives, as husbands, in our marriages, and faithfully pray for our spouse each day that they, along with I, would be filled with the Spirit to allow this Christian marriage to really take place and to take hold, that it bears the image of Christ's love for his church in our families, in our community, and throughout the world. May it all happen to the glory of God. Amen.